The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Very good. Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, Next weekend is Easter. Can you believe it? Where is 2018 gone? Um, We are so excited to celebrate with you guys uh, for Easter Sunday. I'm going to say a little bit about that after the sermon today and uh, when we wrap up. But I'm glad you're here today. And if you're here for the first time, by the way, thank you for being here. We are so honored that you're here. And after the service, we'd love for you to stop by the First Steps table. We'd love to high five you, tell you that we're glad that you're here. Hey, you've uh, walked into week number seven of a series we call This Absurd Life. We've been taking a look at the book of Ecclesiastes. If you happen to have a Bible, this morning. Go ahead and take it out. Um, We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We're going to put the verses on the screen today. And um, I've enjoyed this series. I think I've told you that every single week. And uh, I've enjoyed this passage again today. And uh, I'm grateful to preach through a book of the Bible that God uses to challenge me personally. And so I don't ever want you to think when you come to Story City Church that the pastor has a personal agenda. He must have chosen this passage because he read my mail this week. Uh, I want you to understand that God is reading my mail and he's speaking to me through it. And uh, I hope that will be good for our church together. Let me, let me pray for us and uh, we're going to jump right in. Jesus, uh, thank you for today. God, there's so many things to be grateful for, not the least of which this day has never happened before. This day will never happen again. And so, God, I pray that you would find us not taking it for granted. And so, as we hear your word this morning, may you speak deeply to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody in the Colony Theater said, amen. Amen. Do you know anybody in your life that uh, is just habitual, um, good or bad, that just does habitual things? Anybody know somebody like that? Maybe your spouse or your kids. Um, my father-in-law, I love to talk about my father-in-law. At some point, he's going to listen to the podcast. He's going to be like, stop talking about me. But um, <laughs> my father-in-law is one of the most habitual people I know. For the past 30 years, every single Saturday, my father-in-law eats two chili dogs and he gets a haircut. For 30 years, he's been doing it. <laughs> And I think that's where my kids get it from. My son, Deacon, my oldest son, wakes up every single morning and he eats the same thing for breakfast every single week. He eats a bowl of Cheerios. And then for lunch, every single day, he eats a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which I love. I'm like, that, you get that from me. I love peanut butter and jelly. Um, I, I grew up in a home that, that uh, was habitual about a few things, not a lot of things, but, but one of the things that was habitual in our home was that every single Sunday, uh, we went to church. And I think that was a good habit. And I didn't really understand what that habit was about until I was older in life. But, but I grew up in a home that was habitual about attending church every single Sunday. I'm inspired by people that have habitual lifestyles of doing good things. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, um, Solomon is going to bring us to this point where uh, he's going to look at people who have this habitual religious ritual of, of attending the temple that he's built in Jerusalem. If you remember, Solomon was responsible for building this beautiful, ornate temple that took seven years and 150,000 people to build. And so he's going to turn his attention to these people who are attending his temple that he's built for worship. And he knows to this point, if you've been around for this series, you've heard us walk from Ecclesiastes 1 through Ecclesiastes 4 last week. And Solomon has used this idea of the absurdity of life. And he talks about it in a lot of different ways. He talks about it in your work, in your vocation, in your pleasure, in your powers, in obtaining knowledge and wisdom. And so Solomon has this general perspective on life and he calls it absurd. 
And so Solomon probably has this idea that up until this point, you're probably reading his words and his testimony about life. And he probably understands that you're probably already making the conclusion that if life is monotonous and life is absurd, then possibly the solution and the answer may be religion. And, and, and oftentimes what, what that may mean for people is that we adopt some sort of um, uh, idea of God. We buy into some sort of religious system that suits our personal taste and, and we build our lives around that. And then people embrace these religious practices and superstitions, right? And we fill our lives with all of these self-directed notions about God. But in chapter five of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is gonna say, pump the brakes just for a moment. No, no, no. I'm not suggesting that you should just fill your lives with religion. That's not the direction that I'm leading you because he's going to say that even religion can be absurd. Even religion can be vain and it can be foolish. And so in this passage this morning, uh, I I, I was intended to get all the way through verse 7, but I had so much content, I'm only going to get through three verses this morning, okay? And I'm not going to make it all the way to verse 7 next week. We're just going to skip over it. So if you want to know, you can call me or email me or just guess what he's saying in the next few verses, all right? But in in Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon has this beautiful warning. It's a firm warning. He's got this beautiful and firm warning about hypocrisy and the absurdity of false religion. Because I I assume that, that Solomon is assuming that if we've made it to this point and we have this belief and we understand that everything in this earthly life that he's described so far is absurdity, then Solomon is going to say, then we need to anchor our souls in eternal realities. And Solomon is going to try to project what the proper eternal realities are. And so he's got several questions from verse one to verse seven, but I'm only gonna get to the first question if you're okay with it this morning, all right? Ecclesiastes chapter five, starting in verse one. And Solomon says, and guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament system of worship, then you probably understand that it involved bringing a sacrifice. It's what God set up. It's the system that he established. Um, His his writers in the Old Testament wrote about it in the book of Leviticus. He set it up that way that worshipers would come to the temple and bring an animal sacrifice. Now, my apologies to all the vegans in the room this morning, but that's how God set it up. And so Solomon says, there are these people that are bringing these animal sacrifices to my temple every single week. And Solomon says, that sacrifice is called the sacrifice of fools. Now, why would Solomon say that? Why would Solomon make that statement about the people who were coming to his temple doing what God had prescribed them to do? They were perfectly carrying out this ceremony or this ritual. They were going through these motions. And I'm assuming that Solomon believes that even though they're doing this religious ritual and they're doing it habitually, Solomon says their life is a double standard. They've got the ceremony part down. They've got the ritual part down. They're even habitual about it, but there's a double standard going on in your life. You've got the religious part down, but you're breaking the moral law. In other words, they were consistent Bible attending church attenders, but it seemed that it had no effect on their daily life. 
I, I was a habitual Bible church attending member in my hometown in South Carolina for many years. In fact, they thought because I attended so frequently that they should put me in the church Christmas play as the primary character, right? I didn't know Jesus at the time. I was a faithful uh, church attender. In fact, I showed up for that Christmas play. You've heard me say this before. I showed up to that Christmas play intoxicated, playing the primary role in the Christmas play. But they thought, they thought everything was good because I was habitual and I was religiously attending every single week. You know what Solomon says about that? Solomon says when there's a double standard, even if you're doing the religious ritual right and you ceremonially attending every single week, he says it's foolish. It's foolish to think that you can sort of cover up this inconsistent lifestyle with this weekly habitual religious ritual. Now, the best example I can think about uh, how this is played out in scripture is Israel's first king named Saul, if you remember Saul. And, um, and Saul tried to cover up this life of disobedience with these ritual sacrifices. And at one point in his life, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God tells Saul to lead his people into battle. And whenever he leads them into battle, God says to Saul, don't leave anything left, not even the animals. And so Saul goes into battle. He takes the king of the country, he's, um, of the people that he is uh, warring against. And then he also takes the best animals that are left in the land. Now God said, don't do any of that. He said, don't leave anything. And so Saul comes back and he sets up this altar of worship dedicated to himself. Now the prophet Samuel comes in behind Saul and this prophet Samuel says to Saul, Saul, what are you doing? And Saul looks at the prophet Samuel and he says, I, bought, I brought back the best animal sacrifices to set up an altar of worship to the Lord, which was a lie in itself because the altar was intended for himself. But even if he had brought back the best animal sacrifices, Samuel has a word to Saul. Get rid of everything, even the animals. I've brought back the best animals to sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel says to him, listen to me, Saul. To obey is better than to sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. It's sort of amazing to me here that the God who set up this system of animal sacrifices, right? He said, bring lambs, bring turtle doves, make sacrifices. And he wrote the, about, about how these sacrifices should be carried out in the book of Leviticus. Now that very God in Isaiah chapter one is saying, I am sick of your sacrifices. Why would he say that? Don't bring any more burnt offerings. I don't want the fat of your rams or of the other animals. Why would God who set up this system say that? He came up with the idea because once again, they were obeying the ceremonial law. There was this religious habitual practice in their life, but they were breaking the moral law in their own personal lives. And listen, God doesn't separate the two. So quite often in religious cultures, um, Oftentimes, people may grow up in this religious system called sacerdotalism. Now, that's a big word. You don't have to remember it unless you want to impress somebody today. But the idea about this belief system is that there are a group of men who can disperse or dispense this idea of grace in other people's lives through religious practices like baptism, like communion, like confirmation. And so what happens is people who grew up in this religious system, they falsely believe that if they participate in, in sort of these religious sacraments, and even though their life has never been changed, they're acceptable before God. Now listen, Solomon says, that's a sacrifice of fools. That's a foolish 
sacrifice. Now, in verse 2, Solomon goes on to describe another way that he noticed people are coming to his temple. In verse 2, Solomon says this, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you're on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. Solomon says, do not be quick with your mouth. My three-year-old, who's going to turn four this year, um, he is now, the, 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 he's in charge of praying for all of our meals. Um, he's in charge of saying grace and saying the blessing. Every meal we sit down at, we'll say, does someone want to say the blessing? Before we can finish the words, Roman has raised his hand and he's volunteering to say the blessing, which we love and it's cute and it's amazing. So um, oftentimes when Roman will pray, his prayers will always start out the same way. Thank you, God, for our food. <laughs> Thank you, God, for our family. And then all of a sudden, Roman's mind will begin to wander and he'll look around. And then he'll start saying things like, thank you, God, for my spoon. And thank you, God, for these lights. And thank you, God, for the Dodgers. And I'm like, after 12 irrelevant things that Roman is praying for, sort of I'll come to this place where I'm like, and amen. And I'll just say it out loud. Like, like let's try to bring it to And amen, right? Sometimes... Uh, I'm a bit like uh, that. Solomon says, don't be hasty with your words. But then he goes on to say, don't be hasty in your heart. My prayer life can be like that sometimes. Get it done. Get it over with. Get it through. God, I got these things I need to come to you about. If you could just hear me and make it happen. Oftentimes, I've been in churches where I've been sitting in the pews, and my church attendance has been like that as well. Maybe it's like that for you, like the pastor's preaching like right now, and I'm already thinking through the lunch options. Am I going to go to Burbank Bar and Grill? Am I going to go to Panera? Like, where am I going to go? Hasty in my heart. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Hurry up with church, get over with. Hurry up with my spiritual life, hurry up with my prayer life. And by the way, it's not the length, let me be clear, that Solomon's concerned about. It's not the length that God is concerned about. There's this scene in the Old Testament at this mountain called Carmel, and there's this group of religious people, the Bible says in 1 Kings 18, that are praying from morning until noon. And they're praying to the false gods of Baal, and that's a long time, by the way, morning to noon. And then the prophet, uh, God's prophet Elijah steps in, and he just says a few words. After they're praying for all morning, the prophet of God steps in, and he just has two sentences. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward, and he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Solomon's not talking about the length of your prayers. He's not talking about how long you will endure a sermon at Story City Church. Solomon's talking about the sincerity of your heart. John Bunyan, who wrote uh, in, in Pilgrim's Progress, said, in prayer, it's better to have heart without words than to have words without a heart. Do you know people like that? Do you know people like that? They always want to talk, but they never want to listen. People that are willing to teach, but they're never willing to be taught. They love to be the center of attention. They're happy to speak first and they're happy to speak last. When my oldest son, Deacon, was really young, um, like most kids, he just loved to talk. 
And there was this one occasion where one of my best friends uh, was listening on and on as my son went on and on and on. And at one point, Jay looked at my son and he said, Deacon, do you know why God gave you two ears and one mouth? (laughs) To which my son immediately replied, yes, Mr. Jay, so you can listen to me talk more. (laughs) This is at the heart of what we call consumer Christianity. It may be applied a little bit different than in Solomon's day, but I believe it's the worst expression of Christianity because it has the answer to every problem. But it doesn't understand what the questions are. Consumer Christianity can explain everything wrong with a worship service, find every hypocrite in the crowd, tell you how to interpret a passage and apply it in your life. And by the way, all of us in Western culture can have this aversion, right, to consumer Christianity. Business people can walk into a service like this and see this as a place to troll for clients or or this is a place to, to network in your job, right? We come with our own opinions. We come with our own preferences of church. And then we leave when those preferences aren't met and we burn the house down. Solomon says this type of religion is absurd. It was Jesus' chief complaint against a group of religious people he called the Pharisees. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 3, Jesus said, they preach, but they do not practice. In other words, they were good at telling everybody what to do. But somehow, those words coming out of their mouth didn't translate into the type of religion that Jesus appreciated. And so Jesus goes on in verse 4, and he says, they tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their own finger. Can I say to you this morning, this is a beautiful and firm warning from Solomon. And every distinctive feature of their religion that Jesus was talking to, of those whom Solomon was observing, and those who practice consumer Christianity, the distinctive feature shouts this, look at me, do it my way. The heart of consumer Christianity is an ego centrality that postures myself before all other options. And Solomon is warning. If you look at life and you make this observation that, well, life must just be absurd, so I must turn to religion, Solomon says, let me warn you how you approach this religion. And it's not about you. There are a couple ways that this idea of egocentrality distorts the gospel and how it will distort your view of God and how it will distort your view of God's people. Let me just give you three and then I'm gonna be done this morning. Ego centrality causes people to see other sin rather than their own. The first way that this ego centrality causes you to distort your view of the gospel and how you see God's people and even his church is that ego centrality will cause you to see everybody else's sin except for your own. It seems like everything in life, by the way, It seems like everything in America presently mitigates against personal responsibility, right? Have you had this experience before? Like my bad experience is the result of somebody else's neglect. I burnt my tongue on the hot coffee that somebody else made for me, even though the warning was there that there is hot coffee. 
Now, I want to be careful when I make this statement because I have a new friend in the crowd this morning, and he's a lawyer in Dallas, okay? 80% of the world's lawyers, and by the way, he's one of the most humble men I've ever met, and I'm grateful for him. I'm going to talk about him after the service here in just a moment. 80% of the world's lawyers, and we got another one sitting up in the back. I shouldn't point. I should point. He's over here. He's over here. He's in the back. He's in the back. 80% of the world's lawyers live in America. Here's why. Because there's a man in Michigan um, who watched this Budweiser commercial where they held up a beer and women just materialized in front of the beer. And so when he held up his own beer, women didn't materialize. And so he sued Budweiser for false advertising. Um, 80% of the world's lawyers exist in America because there are women like the one in New York who sued the Clapper company. Remember this? Everything comes on or everything turns off. I think that's now Alexa or Google, right? And, and so she sued the Clapper company because she said her hands were injured because she had to clap too hard, right? I didn't hear what you said, but I, it's, it's awesome. It's somebody else's fault, right? It's somebody else's fault. By the way, there are often times when it legitimately is someone else's fault. But oftentimes in our culture, these ridiculous, frivolous things are the result of ego centrality. And Solomon's trying to give us a warning that we should not bring that ego centrality into our religion. Why? Because it's antithetical to the gospel. It's antithetical to the testimony of Jesus. It's antithetical to the prescription that the record of scripture gives to us for a believer's life. Look, I've read through the Bible often. I've never found a place in scripture that commands us to find someone else to blame. But this is what I do find. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each to the interest of the others. Philippians chapter two, verse three and four. But the egocentric person says, yes. But you don't know what they did. Culture will say, you're to blame for it and somebody has to pay for it. Now listen to me. The gospel says, Jesus says, you are to blame for it and I'm going to pay for it. You will never understand this spirit-filled life of joy, humility, integrity. Listen to me. This has been two hard weeks and I want to tell you, I'm just preaching the Bible, okay? You will never understand spirit-filled joy, humility, and integrity as long as you can never look in the mirror and see your own problems and sin. And Solomon says, please do not bring your ego centrality into your religion. The heart of the gospel is owning your own problems and your own sin. By the way, you can't be a believer in Jesus having been justified and being right with God without owning your own sin. The first way that ego centrality is dangerous in your religion is that it causes you to see other people's sin rather than your own. The second way is that ego centrality causes people to critique rather than to care. Life has this way of continually disappointing us. 
Um, ever since the Garden of Eden, and, if, you, and if, if you've not been in church or you're not familiar with what I'm saying, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we see this dramatic shift in all of humanity and all of the world and how people related to God and how nature related to God, and it changed everything as we know it. And it's the only way we've ever known the world. It's the only way humanity has ever known how to relate with God, how to relate with creation, how to relate with each other. And so since the Garden of Eden... The world has been in this state of continual decay. You understand this, right? Everything's getting worse. Everything is getting old. Everything is de getting, getting decrepit. Everything is deteriorating. Your body, your car, my neighbor's next door fence has literally fallen over and is falling apart. You understand this? He's hopefully going to come to Easter Sunday next Sunday. So don't mention that I even said that, all right? <laughs> A constantly decaying world is in conflict with the egocentric person who expects the world to improve their sense of worth and their value. Let me say that one more time because I want you to digest this. A constantly decaying world is in conflict with the egocentric person who expects the world to improve their sense of worth and value. Why? The egocentric person has expectations that cannot be met by a world that is decomposing. And so what is the result? The result is cynicism. The result is cynicism. Cynicism about everything in life. Government, people, church, God. Just cynicism. They've, people come to believe that I can't trust anything in life because everything has let me down. And so rather than believe that I've, I've misplaced my trust in some areas, probably because of my own ego centrality, and maybe that's the primary culprit of what's going on in life, they become critical of everything around them. We've placed our trust in this decaying world around us and it will constantly let us down. And the result, if we are uh, egocentric in our life, in our posture towards the world and other people and our church and the people in our church and the people in our home is that they're constantly gonna let us down. And then that means we will, if we allow it to take root in our heart, we will continually be cynical in our life. The third thing, and I'm almost done, and Tyler's gonna come up. Egocentrality causes people to lack the self-awareness to understand their own foolishness. Egocentrality causes people to lack the self-awareness to understand their own foolishness. This is what Solomon said in verse one. They do not know that they are wrong. They do not know that they are wrong. It's hard to help the person who lacks self-awareness understand they lack self-awareness. And by the way, all of us do in some area of life and all of us have blind spots in our lives. But listen to what Solomon is saying. Ego centrality causes us to be oblivious to our own foolishness. And if you bring that into your religion, it's gonna be disastrous. Solomon says, it's a dangerous corruption to what true worship ought to be. And so what does Solomon say? The answer is, verse one, guard your steps when you come to the house of God. He doesn't just mean the building that we meet in on Sundays because we are the house of God. If you're a believer, you are the church, capital C. Guard your steps when you come to church. Guard your steps when you relate 
to the body. Guard your steps when you're alone and someone has offended you. The question that Solomon's gonna pose to us is how do you approach God? How do you approach God and, and his people? Solomon was an expert in how to approach God. He built this temple. Seven years, 150,000 people. Solomon was an expert in how to approach God. We read the Old Testament accurately. We find out that God took seriously how people approached him in his temple. In fact, we're told in the Old Testament that the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence resided. If he went in appropriately, he would always go in with a belt tied around, a rope tied around, and it would extend out of the Holy of Holies because if he went in appropriately, inappropriately, he would die instantly. And they would need to drag his body out because no one else could go into the Holy of Holies but the high priest. In Leviticus chapter 15, verse 31, it says, thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. Listen, I believe God takes your approach to him seriously. If you approach God with this consumer Christianity mindset where your ego centrality has placed you above all else and I'm asking you to listen to God today. He's telling you to listen. Your approach is offensive. Your response if ego centrality will not interfere, listen to me, is to look into the mirror. Admit your faults and your sinful approach to God. Listen, repent of your ego centrality. Repent of your ego centrality of always having to have life on your terms. Solomon says, be diligent to listen. Give thought to what you are in his house for. Pay careful attention to the words of praise and instruction and rebuke and exhortation. And finally, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. How do you approach God? How do you approach his people? I don't just mean how do you come to church today? Look, at some point, you're gonna have an offense against another brother or sister. And I can promise you, if your life is ruled by ego centrality, you're gonna see their sin before you'll see your own. You're gonna not be able to look in the mirror and see your own sin. You're gonna have this, this disjointed perspective of life that you're right and they're wrong. You're gonna have this disjointed perspective of life that, that they should humble themselves while your self is exalted. You're gonna have this disjointed perspective of life that you can't even see where you were wrong. And God says, do away with your religious habitual rituals. I want your heart. I want you to look in the mirror and shed yourself. Be done with yourself. I just love it in this passage. I didn't get all the way to verse seven. It says, when you go to the house of God, when you listen to God, you get down in, in verse seven and it reminds us again what's going on here. Verse seven says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. 
Who's the audience here? Not you, not me. It's God. Hates the point. And Solomon says, if you're not careful, even religion can be absurd. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful and firm warning from Solomon this morning. God, oftentimes I know it's difficult to digest the harsh words of Scripture. God, I'm convinced in my own heart that if I can't digest the hard words, harsh words of Scripture, that I'll never truly be able to digest the easy words. God, this morning, I pray that you would speak to us as a church. God, let us shed our ego centrality, starting with me, God. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's ultimately about God. Let us look in the mirror. God, let us be open to our blind spots in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.